Well, good morning. Give your Bibles, get them open to Luke chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. Get to page 907. You're going to be there with us in Luke chapter 1 this morning, and we're glad that you're here. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to just remind you of uh, a couple things coming up this week. Is First of all, we have uh, two services on Saturday for Christmas Eve. One is at 3 and one is at 7. And then we have two services next Sunday for Christmas Sunday at 9.30 and 10.45. And uh, we hope uh, that you can make uh, one, one or two of those. Um, they will be different services. They're not going to be four identical services. Christmas Eve will be very different from Sunday morning. Um, and so we'd love to have you be a part of that. And on your way out, if you go out uh, that door on the shelf, there are some invite cards that we've made with all those service times that you can take those and invite others to join you. Uh, I was reading an article this week that was challenging church leaders to uh, re-engage their congregation in the habit of inviting people to church uh, that, that, that had fallen off steeply during COVID, um, and it was time to, to try to encourage you to get back in that. And I, I agree with that, that, that it did fall off during COVID, and it's time to get back to inviting people. And so uh, we've made some invite cards for you, and, uh, and we, uh, we hope you'll take those and, and uh, take advantage of them. Before I jump into the sermon, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful um, for the opportunity that we have uh, to gather together this morning. We're grateful for each and every person who's here, um, who's a part of this. Uh, and God, we just know that it's not by accident that they're here. And so we pray as, as we uh, navigate your scriptures this morning, Lord, that you would be the one that teaches uh, most loudly. God, you'd be the one that teaches most clearly. Um, that you would push aside all distractions of life. Uh, and, and may we hear directly from you and respond humbly. And we ask that you get the glory from all this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, can you bring the house lights up so when I ask people to look at the scriptures, they can see them? Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, I still remember uh, as a young kid uh, being in, in, the, in our yard in Cloverdale, and, and one of my favorite memories is, was uh, getting pitch batting practice by my father. Uh, it was just, we'd go out there, he'd, take, he'd have a whole five-gallon bucket of baseballs, so just throw me baseball after baseball, and I'd hit them. And in most days, uh, I, there would be a stretch there, two, three, four balls in a row that I'd either miss or foul off or just not make as good a contact with. And Dad always reverted to the same tactic, where he'd pick up the ball, and he'd hold the ball out like this. And he'd say, now I'm not going to throw the pitch, I just want you to stare at the ball and take a swing. And every time it annoyed me. I was like, come on, you're not going to throw the ball. What am I going to take a swing for? He's like, I need you to stare at the ball and take a swing. And so I'd do it. He'd say, again. And I'd do it again. And he'd say, again, I'd be less into it. And every time I'd hit the ball, better after. Because he's retraining me to keep my eyes on the ball. And you know how uh, we become more like our parents than we'd like to think? Well, earlier this year, I was throwing softballs to my daughters in the backyard, and uh, we got to a stretch where one of them had, had not, I could tell she was looking away and not quite making a good contact, so I took the softball, I put it up out of the bucket, and I said, I'm going to hold it out here, and I'm not going to throw it, I want you to, what am I doing? I was like, no, we're not going to do that, all right? I just want you to look at the softball, and then and when you hit it, and so uh, that, yeah, you counter that with, or you couple that with, I remember being on the golf course, there was something a guy said to me um, that I've never forgotten. It's like the one piece of golf advice that I remind myself of almost every time I go out. And he said, you know what you see whenever you take your eyes off the ball? You see a bad shot. And I've always remembered that because of the simplicity of it. But in sports and in life, where we fix our eyes determines a lot. Right? It colors how we see things. It colors how we react to things. The, the prism in which not just how we see, but also interpret and react to the events in our lives is massively important. 
Right? Where we fix our eyes becomes the filter that we run everything through. And we've been talking about this all series long. Our Advent series uh, this year, we're calling Look Up, and, it's, and, it, and we're counteracting this idea, the idea of, of navel-gazing, and we've defined it for you each week. Right, this is what the dictionary says is navel-gazing. It's a self-indulgent or excessive contemplation of oneself at the expense of a wider view. We've tried to put it more simply, that, that it's navel-gazing is just thinking of yourself so much that you cannot see or contemplate others, and you miss out on what God is doing. But literally, in the, in the formal definition is this idea. Navel-gazing is fixing your eyes on you. And when we do that, everything that happens to us is funneled through a me-first filter. And this is not for our good. It sounds like it'd be for our good, but it's not. It makes us less patient and more discontent. It makes us less fulfilled and more angry. Which is why I say, hopefully, we as a church have been prayerfully going to war against this. We've shown you Jesus' command in John 4 disciples that, to take their eyes off themselves, to look up and look out at the fields and see what God is doing in another's life. Last week, we, we broke down for you Joseph's story and how the decisions he made had to be selfless. Today, we're going to look at Mary's story. But as we do, right, there's a command in the Bible that I would just like to serve as the anchor for this entire message. Kind of the theme that runs through it. And we found, it's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which says, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. See, one of the greatest ways to look up and take the focus off yourself is to look for God in everything. The book of Hebrews says that as we run the race of life, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And that will give us the vision that we need to run it well. Because if you fix your eyes on God, you begin to see him in everything. And so if you're struggling to stop navel-gazing, right? If you're unsure even, if you sit there this morning, you're even unsure of what an ongoing reliance or relationship with God would even look like. You've never considered or tried to see God in everything that ever happens to you, then I'm really glad you're here today because we're going to see this modeled for us in the scriptures and we're going to see it modeled for us by a young girl whose entire life has just been thrown upside down. And so I'm going to invite Ruth up to read today's passage for us. She's been reading Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Good morning. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called, 
barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You guys have a seat. As always, please keep your scriptures open to that passage. That's the one we're going to be breaking down. And uh, one of the things I've asked you to do throughout this series each week is, is to just let's level with each other. Right? I'm honest with you that I'm guilty of navel-gazing too much, and I've asked you to be honest with me that you are as well. And hopefully, this far into it, we're no longer okay with it. We're asking the Lord to change it. But there is one, if you, if you want to know how you're progressing in this, right? There's one really good litmus test for this. If you want to know if you're making progress in overcoming this, or if it still has a hold on you, there's one surefire way to find out, and it's to get interrupted. It's to have a goal or a plan or a vision for your day or that conversation or that task and have it be completely derailed and interrupted and have something come your way that you weren't planning. You'll know then how well you're overcoming navel-gazing. Because the question is, how do you handle that? Are you immediately annoyed? Do you you try to usher the interruption away as soon as possible? Do you try to ignore it or get rid of it? Or do you have the discipline to pause and say, wait a minute, this is something that I didn't seek out at all. It just came my way. What if God has something in this for me? I say that because we're going to have a lot of opportunity for this. And the reason why is because we serve a God who is a God of interruption. And most of the time, our reaction interruption is the same. We hate it. Right? We're never ready for it. We never really feel like we have the time for it. Our schedule is already too full. Right? And yet, this is a strategy that God employs often to his people. He brings things along our way with no warning and no heads up. It's almost as if God has this confidence that his plans are better than ours. Weird, right? And what we just read in Luke 1, make no mistake about it, this is a major interruption for Mary's life. And it could not have come at a worse time. And I'd like to explain why. Verse 27 tells us that Mary, who is a virgin, is engaged to be married to Joseph. And last week we talked about the betrothal process, how that would work a little bit different than ours in today, in, in which Mary and Joseph would go to the town gate, to the elders there in Nazareth, and say, we would like to be married. And on that day, immediately, they would have to give their vows of commitment to one another. And so they would immediately be legally bound to one another, but they would then enter in what is known as the betrothal period. It's a one-month waiting period, or one-year waiting period, in which they are legally bound to one another, but they cannot live together, they cannot consummate the marriage, they cannot come together. And so they're in the middle of that, and this would be huge for Mary. And the reason why is because really smart people who know history, know Hebrew culture, are all in agreement that Mary was a member of a group known as the Anawim. Now, the Anawim in Hebrew just means the poor ones are the pious poor, the faithful poor. And the existence of this group traces back at least to the exile, and there's some evidence that was before. And I'm going to tell you what the group is, how they operate in a second, but there are a few reasons why everyone's so confident in this. Number one is that there are no, there's no mention in the Bible of Mary's parents ever. And we know she had parents, right? Like, logically, you know that. But there's no mention of them. And so the very heavy assumption is that they are dead and that she's an orphan. We don't know how long she's been an orphan, but there's no, there's no record of her parents. And so that's a pretty heavy assumption by scholars. Number two, when Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph go to the temple and they have to dedicate Jesus on his eighth day. And in the law, you had two options there. Everybody was expected to buy a lamb for the dedication of their firstborn. Or if you were too poor and couldn't afford it, then you could, you could do a dove because God made that like exclusion for those who couldn't afford it. And Joseph and Mary can't afford a lamb. And so they're poor. Number three is Mary's prayer, 
All right, we're going to read this in detail today, but if you look at verse 46 of chapter 1, okay, this is how Mary starts her prayer of praise. She says, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. That phrase right there, looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant, that's like a code language for the Anawim. And lastly, it was her immense knowledge of the scriptures. And, and here's why this matters. The, the Anawim would spend the vast majority of their time in the temple. And the reasons why are simple. They had nowhere else to be. They had nowhere else to get cared for and nowhere else to get ministered to. And so they would sit at the temple all, all the time, relying on the generosity of God's people to take care of them. And so if you remember the Anawim, you would hear the scriptures every single day. Day And so just by being there, by absorbing that, you, they would know the scriptures well. And Mary's prayer here in verses 46 to 55, there are 30 different references to Old Testament scriptures in just 10 verses. And so that, all that leads scholars to say that she absolutely was a member of the Anawim. And the Anawim, was, they, were, they were made up of orphans and widows and, and the sick and disabled who could not provide for themselves and had to rely on God. And so Mary, even at a young age, has already been forced to learn how to live dependent fully on God and his people for everything. But finally, something good happens to Mary. She catches a huge break. You know what it is? Joseph wants to marry her. And there would be two huge cultural implications for Mary in, in that, and they're both very real. First, in Jewish culture, uh, descendancy and, and the family name was held in the highest honor. I, I would like to challenge you guys. I, I would bet most people in this room today don't know the names of any of their descendants beyond their great-grandparents. And you might not even know the names of your great-grandparents. But Jewish families did. It's why, remember last week back in Matthew 1, before we started reading, Matthew, the start of Matthew, is the lineage all the way from Adam, the first person, to Joseph. They kept record of all that. They memorized all that. They knew all that because it was culturally incredibly important to them. It was incredibly important to them that their family name carry on. It was incredibly important for them to multiply and fill the earth. The more children that you could have in Hebrew culture, the better. And so from a young age, Jewish girls were trained. They were brought up to be wives and mothers because it would be the single greatest honor of their lives to bear children and carry on their husband's name. It was what they aspired to. It was what they celebrated. It was why they were married at such a young age. We are never told Mary's age here, but the vast majority of betrothals happen in the teen years to try to take advantage of as many childbearing years as possible. Now, just a quick aside before we get back to Mary's story. This is why throughout the entire Old Testament you see God displaying such a tender heart towards those who struggle with infertility. Because can you imagine? Not only do you have that struggle and the desperation of that pain, but then you throw on all the culture expectations and shame that came on top of it. And throughout the scriptures, God's posture has been the same, that nobody has to accomplish anything or do anything to be valued or loved by him. So to those who face this struggle and feel this pain today, all I can tell you is what the scriptures tell you. He sees you and his grace is there for you. And I don't know why he saw fit to have this be part of your story, but he does. And the scriptures, he always uses it to do something miraculous. But grief is good. Pain is normal. But be sure not to heap shame on top of yourself because God does not. And not only did Mary have the culture expectation of being a mother, but she also, in, in addition to that, had her own physical needs to survive. 
And so for a teen girl in the Anawim, getting married literally often spelled the difference between life and death. It was, this would actually extend her life expectancy. Because Joseph's not rich, but he represents security. But he has a job, he has a profession, he's a member of the Sadiq, he has a great reputation in town. And so make no mistake about it, getting betrothed to Joseph is the single greatest thing that's happened to Mary in her life to this point. Because for maybe the first time in her life, things are actually looking up. For now, she can finally think of her future and what it will actually include is hope and security and optimism. And she's never had that before. And that is when God interrupts her life. Verse 26, he sends an angel by the name Gabriel to visit Mary. And and Gabriel shows up in verse 28. This is what he says. Greetings, favored woman, woman. The Lord is with you. Now, what we see throughout the scriptures is this, that God's interruptions often make life more difficult at first. Because there's, there's a little detail that if you just read this passage and don't, look, and don't notice it, you might miss it. But I think it'd be really good for us to take note of. And to help us understand this, if you have Luke 1 open, look at Luke chapter 2 and look at, look at verse 8 in Luke chapter 2. In the same reason, the shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over the flock. Verse 9, then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone, round, shone around them. And what happened? And they were terrified. Okay. I read that to you to let you know this. That right there is the normal reaction to seeing an angel in the Bible. Right? The vast, vast majority of times whenever somebody sees an angel in the Bible, their reaction was to be absolutely scared out of their minds, which is why the depiction of angels in art or TV or movies is always unimpressive to me and often quite frustrating. Because if I told you this morning just to close your eyes and picture an angel, what you've been conditioned to picture is some dude with a perm with white flowing cloths, or even worse, if you're an art student, a fat baby, Right? That's what you're picturing. And it's always in movies, they always seem to find actors to, to serve as the role of angel who have some kind of testosterone allergy. I, I, it just doesn't make sense, right? Because when an angel appears in the Bible, there's always great fear. But you know the one time that doesn't happen is in Luke chapter one. That's not what happens here. Mary's not afraid of Gabriel. And I don't know Why? It's possible that God altered Gabriel's appearance because he was appearing to a young girl. That seems like something the Lord would do. But it's not that Mary isn't afraid of anything. She is afraid of something. Did you catch it? Look at verse 29. She was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Now remind yourself, this is the greeting. Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. And Mary's terrified to hear that. Now, why would she be troubled by this? That sounds positive, doesn't it? And remember, as the Anna Weems, she would know the scriptures really well. She knew that when in, whenever God interrupts someone's life in the Old Testament and it came with this greeting, things didn't get easier. One example, there's this guy named Gideon. During his life, the Israelites were conquered by Midian, and uh, the Midianites were cruel to Israel. They're trying to choke them out and starve them out, and we're introduced to to Gideon. He's hiding from the Midianites. He's underground trying to harvest his wheat, and he's terrified of them, and an angel appears to him and says what? The Lord is with you. Same exact greeting that Mary got. And to make a long story short, here's what happens next for Gideon. Gideon is told that God is choosing him to lead the Israelites in war against Midian. God has him tear down an altar to a false god and immediately the people in his town want to kill him. 
He then survives that, forms an army, and before battle, God comes to Gideon and says, I love what you've done here. There's just one problem. You have too many soldiers for this battle, which I doubt Gideon thought was a problem. And he has to send a whole bunch of people away, making the odds even worse. Now, the Lord brought victory. Israel was delivered, but Gideon had to go through the press first. His life was interrupted, and his life got incredibly harder. And Mary knows the Old Testament well. She knows immediately that when an angel shows up and has this greeting, life's not going to be the same. Her future is not going to be this safe, comfortable, secure life. She's going to go on an adventure and one that the Anawi, a girl from the Anawim would never dream of. And at this point, I think she's just bracing herself for what's next. And Gabriel continues to look at verse 30. It says, The angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Again, with her knowledge of the Old Testament, she knows exactly what this means. She knows that Gabriel just told her that she's gonna give birth to the Messiah. She is going to give birth to God's son, that she's going to deliver the one who will deliver God's people, that she of all people will bear the child that her people have waited hundreds of years for. But did you notice that she doesn't immediately rejoice? There hasn't been a shred of bad news in what Gabriel has said thus far. But Mary hasn't forgotten the greeting. And she's expecting a challenge, and then it hits her, verse 34. How can this be, she asked, since I have not had sexual relations with a man. Now notice in the message, the one thing Gabriel hasn't said is that this is going to happen immediately. So I think this was a question of hope. Maybe, just maybe, what Gabriel say is it's after the betrothal period is over. But I think deep down she already knows what's coming next. Verse 35. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, there are two challenges left for Mary at this point. Number one would be believing this. And number two would be receiving this. And I don't think believing it will be a stretch for her. Mary already knows there's nothing impossible for God. She knows the scriptures. She knows all the stories of the things that God has done for her people in the past. She knows that despite her state in the Anawim, her needs have always been met somehow. She's always survived because God has always provided. And please don't discount this. She's talking with an angel currently. So something supernatural would not be a stretch for her to believe. It'd be easy for her to believe this is true. Receiving this news, however, accepting it, that's a much harder task. Because everything is now at risk. Her future, her security, her marriage, all of it is now at risk. And she's all alone here. There's nobody with her. So she's going to have to go and tell others. She's going to have to go tell Joseph. What in the world are you going to say with that? Joseph, I'm pregnant. But I didn't cheat. Trust me. An angel visited me and I'm going to have a miracle child. And I, Joseph, your fiance, I'm the one who's going to give birth to God's son because he chose me. And in the future, there are going to be last second desperation passes in football games that are going to be named after me. You're not going to believe this, right? It would all sound that unbelievable. 
And we covered last week what the law said about adulterers, that public divorce is coming her way, scorn is coming her way, possible execution. And so at her age, she's just been given the most exciting and most confusing, most wondrous and most terrifying news of her life. But do you know what she hasn't been given yet? How any of it's going to work out. None of her questions are answered. None of her problems have been solved. None of the conversations have happened, which is why what we see next from Mary is remarkable. Look at verse 38. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. You see, surrender is an, is an amazing antidote to navel-gazing. Somehow, in this one visit, Mary's future is scarier and more uncertain than it was before she was engaged. And her first reaction, her immediate response to the news is this. I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever he wants to do with me, let him do. I'm in. That's remarkable. The faith and the trust and the surrender is so impressive. It reminds me of another story in the New Testament that's always impressed me, and, and it's something I've tried to aspire to, where it's John the Baptist, where he was the biggest, most popular rabbi on the scene. Everybody was coming to John to be taught. Everybody was coming to John to be baptized. And then Jesus shows up one day. And all of a sudden, all the crowds leave John, and they all start going to follow Jesus, and it's just John and his disciples, and they're not happy about it. Because John's disciples come to complain about him, come to complain about it to him and say, Master, everybody's going to follow him. They're not coming to us anymore. And here was John's answer to them. He responded, No one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. And then he told them of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, both of those answers, both Mary's answer and John's answer, display a posture that's the opposite of navel gazing. It's the posture of receiving. It's the posture that recognizes that God is in everything, that he is, he is sovereign, he's in control, and the best way to respond to that is not by questioning or pushing back or fighting against or advocating for yourself. It's just to surrender. And I want you to see how this frees you up. Right? Because look again at what we're told at the end of verse 38. It says, at this moment, the angel leaves her, and just like that, she's all alone. Her life has been completely interrupted, the timing could not be worse. There's really difficult and, and awkward conversations ahead. Her reputation is going to be ruined. Her life is at risk. Nothing's going to be the same after this. And she, as she processes it, she never says, woe is me. She doesn't say, why, why didn't God ask me about this first? Why now? Why not in six months? Doesn't he care how hard this is making everything on me? Instead, what she does is she travels to see Elizabeth, who the angel mentions. And look at what she does in verse 46. <laughs> I want to read her entire song of praise here. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation of those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Now, there's one detail in that prayer that I do not want you to miss. That prayer, that song of praise, came before any of her questions have been answered. 
that came before any of her problems have been solved. She still doesn't know how it's all going to play out. She still doesn't talk to Joseph. She still doesn't know how this is going to go, and yet she's praising God before one of her problems are solved. And I'm betting with three different services today and a crowd this size, there are going to be people here today who feel like they are in a room all alone like Mary was. Your life has been recently interrupted and you're reeling and you might, even, you might even feel like you've been abandoned and you're trying to decide what your next move is going to be. I know there are going to be people here who struggle mightily with navel gazing, that you just funnel everything that happens to you through the prism of how it affects you first and in doing so, you're missing out on others and what God is up to. There are probably people here who have a decision to make like Mary did. You've heard that Jesus can save your soul. You've heard that he can change your life, that he died on the cross for your sins and and rose from the dead. And a big part of you knows you need this, but you're struggling with this decision because you don't know if you believe it. Because you're being honest, this whole death resurrection thing sounds an awful lot like a virgin giving birth and you just don't know if you can surrender to that. There are those here today whose future has to feel uncertain with rising costs of living or job loss or relational strife or changing circumstances, whatever it is, it just feels like everything underneath you is unsteady right now. And there are things that you were banking on, there are things that you were comfortable with that are no longer there, no longer certain. And there'll be those who are facing a mountain that you didn't choose. Some kind of illness, infertility, your marriage crumbling, a wayward child, grief from more, and you have to feel just like Mary did when the angel left her. And for each of these situations and more, the answer to this is where we began. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Please note, the race was marked out before us. We didn't draw it. We have no control over where it takes us. And so we run it with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We let him be our north star, our guiding point. Where we let him be the place where we put all our hope and trust. And taking our eyes off of ourselves and fixing them on Jesus instead has a profound effect on us. First, it reminds us that the past is a promise. See, the reason I think that Mary was quick to surrender and quick to believe is because of her past. As a member of the Anawim, she, she was used to being in really desperate situations. She was used to being fully relying on God to come through and then watched him come through repeatedly and this deepened her faith. And so if you're out there this morning, you're facing something that the answers so far seem out of reach to you. Something that's hurtful or confusing or harder than you'd ever choose. Something that the timing could not be worse and has interrupted your life then I would tell you first just to take a look back and remember the last time life was this hard. The last time you had questions. The last time you're in the press and remember you're still here. God brought you through that. There were answers he did provide. There was grace and comfort and peace that he did give. There were times that he carried you when you couldn't take another step. You were never ever alone. He was faithful then and he promises to be faithful now. Fixing our eyes on Jesus also tells us, it also makes the posture of receiving way more possible. Do you know why Mary and John the Baptist were quick just to receive from God even when things made it worse or harder for them? It's because they had confidence in something that's incredibly important, that God was good and loving and was for them. And Hebrews 12 continues, by the way. 
We're told to keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And here's what we're told about him. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. I mention that because I think, I think there needs to come a time in our relationships where people earn the benefit of the doubt. Right? There are people that I know that if I'm told something critical of them or hear that they said or did something critical or against me, my first reaction is, well, I gotta hear, there's, there's gotta be more of the story. I'm not just gonna believe that at the outset. And the reason why is because those people have been so good to me is that they've earned the benefit of the doubt. I implicitly trust them. And they're sinners. So how much more, when I fix my eyes on Jesus Christ, should my trust in him balloon and multiply again and again and again when I consider the holy, blameless, spotless, sinless son of God who counted it joy to be whipped and beaten and suffer for a sinner like me? When I consider the holy, blameless Son of God who paid my price and saved me and forgave me and granted me eternal life, not because of anything that I've ever done, not because I deserve it, but all by his grace. So when he brings something hard along my way, if I remember who he is, I'm way more apt to just receive it. Because I can know how good and how loving and how for me he is. We need to get to the point where we can say to God, God, I don't understand this. I wouldn't choose it. I don't get it but I still receive it and I'm surrendering it to you. And by the way, for those of you struggling to believe in Jesus for the first time, I would tell you the same thing, just to receive. Because if you can get over yourself and just look to Jesus, you will see a God and a Savior who's for you. See, a God who suffered and was beaten and killed for you, whose heart is to save you and is fully capable of doing so and stands at the ready. If you just surrender and believe and receive, that grace will be yours today in Jesus Christ. And lastly, fixing your eyes on Jesus means that praise can endure through the valley. See, Mary broke out in praise before she ever told Joseph. She broke out in praise before God saved her marriage. She broke out in praise before her son was born and Mary's life was spared. She broke out in praise before a single fear was stilled or a problem was solved. She sang of and believed in the wondrous goodness of God to her. And by the way, this won't be the last time that this child causes her great heartache. Because in the future, she's going to stand and watch. She's going to be in the audience of and witness to her son being brutally killed. And this experience will prepare her for that one. And with her eyes fixed on the Lord, her praise could endure. I'm convinced that suffering well is one of the most amazing things that you can witness somebody do. And I'm also convinced that it's only possible by taking the focus off of yourself and off of your pain and off of your problems and off of your grief and setting their focus squarely on God and his character and his peace and his comfort because it causes the praise to endure. It unleashes worship while in the valley, not just on the other side when everything's been fixed. I don't know what all you're facing today, what burdens you're carrying. I don't, I don't know if you fully surrendered them or your life to Jesus or not. I don't, I don't want to. The last thing I want to do this morning is downplay any mountains that lay in front of you. But if I could just plead with you to do one thing this morning, which is to fix your gaze and submit your eyes on Jesus and do not move them. 
And if you do, you're going to see a God who loves you and has made a way for you. You're going to see a God who is full of grace and compassion and mercy and power. You're going to see a God who will save any who call out in belief to him. You'll see a God who carries the weak and comforts the brokenhearted and is present with the lonely and soothes the wounded. You're going to see a God who's worth believing in. You see a God who's worth trusting your eternity to, who bring good even out of this terrible season in your life, who's at work in the midst of your confusion, and a God who's never failed you and will never forsake you. A God who can be trusted enough that we freely receive from him, and a God whose praise should never be far from our hearts or far from our lips. So fix your eyes on him, and I promise that what you'll see is wondrous. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a God of interruption. You're a God that brings things our way that we would never plan, that we would never choose, that we'd never want, that we'd never look for. And in those, you have tremendous purposes. In those, you do miraculous, transforming things, whether we fight against them or receive them humbly or not. And so, Lord, around this room, I just pray that as we enter this time of response, God, that you... Lord, that you would, you would allow us a moment to just fix our gaze on you, to set our eyes on the reality of Jesus, the reality of Jesus who for the joy that laid before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, would you, for those who are hurting, would you, would you help us to see your comfort? For those who are confused, would you help us to see your clarity? For those who are in pain, would you help us to, to feel your relief? For those who, are, who feel isolated alone, would you help us to see your presence? And for those who don't know you, would you help us to see the grace that is available to us in Jesus Christ? And by fixing our eyes on you, may, may the mountains fall away. May the problems dissipate. May we, may we see things in the right perspective because we are looking to you first. We pray that you do this for our sake and for the sake of those that we will come in contact with and be able to comfort with the grace we've received from you. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, for our response time, we're doing something a little different this week. Instead of putting stuff on the screen for you or asking your prayer, we're just going to give you a moment just to spend some time with the Lord. Uh, in a few minutes, Grace will start a song. You can join her or not. This is just your time to pray, your time just to receive of the grace and compassion and mercy of God for you. So take this moment and just spend it with our gracious Lord.